It is better to think of church in the alehouse than to think of the alehouse in church. Welcome back to the Go to Hell podcast. Strong opinions weekly held about Christianity, the church, and beer. I'm your host, Tim Curley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Colton Pierce. Colton, Bubby, how are we doing? Dude, we're doing phenomenal. Manchester United took the dub on Saturday. It was phenomenal. It was a weekend to remember. Uh, Manchester is red once again. Um, I, I just can't say any more about it. Like Marcus Rashford is insane. He's one of my favorite players. He has been for a while now. Um, and so this is just, oh, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And like, if you saw the game, Manchester United was on the offensive. They were like, we are coming to win this game. This is not a game that we're looking to tie. We're looking to win this thing. And that was amazing to see so but the problem is on sunday we play gunners which gunners are at the top of the table so i mean this is just how i'm feeling i know everybody's all like super hyped about the nfl playoffs and all that kind of stuff but i'm just saying that the soccer boy over here is still living off this high so uh that's how i'm feeling also like and it kind of helps make up for the fact that i'm back in school today so uh but that's good i'm happy to see my students again so we got 18, 19 weeks until summer vacation. So, you know, <laughs> not counting down or anything. That's all I ever hear from teachers is <laughs> what holiday they just had and how many days to the next one. <laughs> well, if you want to, if you want to know how many days until my next three day weekend, it's like, I don't know. I honestly don't know. I never keep track of that thing. I only know that it's 19 weeks until the end of the semester. Cause I have to tell my students over and over again. It's like, you need to make it through these 19 weeks. Like, you got to come to school prepared every single day. Get ready to work. This isn't like we're coming here, we're playing games and that kind of stuff. No, you need to come here ready to work. Do you have to tell them to tie their shoes and blow their nose too? Uh, no, they usually have that figured out by the end of the eighth I'm, grade year. Okay, maybe, I guess. <laughs> well, they, they, think, they think otherwise. So. <laughs> How are you doing, Tim? Uh, good. I was watching the other football all weekend, although I was aware of the, the Dobby going on, but yeah, I watched wall to wall football and I got to say I was entertained and maybe this is just like nostalgia. You know, you get to a certain age and everything always seems better when you were younger, but man, there are a lot of bad playoff teams and it's not just this year. It's been going on a couple years and there's a couple reasons for it. Well, some people might disagree, but I don't. Look, I coached football. I'm going to say it. I coached football for 10 years. I've lived, watched football my entire life. This is not a good, well, it's an entertaining product, which at the end of the day, that's all. A lot of people don't really sit there and watch the game. But these playoff teams have bad coaches. I mean, just the level of stupidity. And a lot of these guys don't know what their, their job is. They think their job is to... Call plays on defense. What was that? Oh, I have two things to bring up about about this this football that we're talking about. Okay. Yes. Oh, great football. Yeah, they they think well, you know, I'm I'm here to call the defense, and then I gotta, I gotta 
a guy who's going to call the offense. No, your job is to put together a game plan, coach your coaches, and do game management during the game. Pretty much none of these young coaches know what the hell they're doing when it comes to game management. They are all atrocious. It's, it's, and that's what the Chargers lost because the head coach didn't hold the offensive coordinator accountable and draw time off the clock. And so we have this huge comeback because they were just running the same stuff they were in the first half. You know, what, what do we do? What do we, what do we, so what? So I get very frustrated. Even with my high school friends, we have this, we're always texting during games. I think privately they're probably all down in LA going like, what the hell is up with Tim? He's just like this grumpy old man. So yeah, they're hiring too many young coaches who don't know what they're doing. They're not ready for the job. And then they only practice in pads. I think total practices now are like between for training camp and the season, you were allowed 16 practices in pads hitting. That is not enough time to learn how to block properly and tackle and all that other stuff. And so that's why a lot of this, it just, it's not, but yeah, too many of these guys don't know what they're doing. Well, one, the Chargers let go of their offensive coordinator. Yeah, that's going to solve the problem. (laughs) Well, I just know that uh, Tim can now be a Chargers fan now that he doesn't have, now that the Chargers don't have their offensive coordinator that he can't stand. I don't. (laughs) Next. The head coach is the one that drives me nuts. Trevor Lawrence. the most arrogant bastard I've ever seen. Trevor Lawrence continues to have never lost a game on a Saturday, which I love. Oh, yeah, that's great. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Third, golly, do the Dallas Cowboys need a new kicker. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, he was bad last night. I was like yelling at the TV. Okay, this is another thing that bothers me about modern football. And it's one thing, I hate the New York Giants because I'm a Cowboys fan. But their coach, Brian Dable, if you watch Giants games, he rips new a-holes with players on the sideline which i've always been told by former players and people in the nfl like oh you don't do that these guys are professionals you don't dress them down in front of everybody hell no he screamed at his starting quarterback a couple weeks ago just chewed him out for a couple minutes because he threw a pick i think in the end zone or threw a pick six pick pick six he was chewing guys out all throughout the game every time they screwed up so i'm watching you know the cowboys game and Okay, one missed extra field goal, fine, because we're in this strange thing that now that they've moved the field goal back, it seems easier. It seems like it's easier for uh, kickers to kick the the 50-plusers than it does the ones inside of 40 yards, which makes no sense, but that's the way it seems when you're watching games. Two, okay, we have a problem. After the third one, chew the guy's ass out on the sideline and say, pull your head out of your ass. And start kicking the ball. Well, they didn't need it. That was the hard part. No, but you tell them I need. We're gonna need you next week because if they do that against the Niners, like they've got a chance anyway. But I was like, I was like, man, this is looking like a high school football game. (laughs) There was a lot of brutal football. That was funny. I listen. I'm sorry to the Cowboys franchise if you don't think that that's funny. I, I, as somebody who doesn't watch football on a regular occasion, it's it's still kind of humorous. well. You're right. It's funny because it didn't cost us the game, but yeah, exactly. I was like, um, at least you guys can all laugh it off and just be like, yeah. But meanwhile, <laughs> let's see how you do next week. He's had a great season so far. That's what's so funny about it. So, ugh, kickers, what are you gonna do? 
Well, that's, that's what everyone was saying in the Chargers game too. Oh, if we'd only made that field goal, we get a twenty-seven point, twenty-seven point lead with a couple minutes left in the second quarter. Your problem wasn't that the kicker missed the field goal. Yeah, definitely. You, not. It was much bigger than that. So, well, I'd say we need to raise a glass to that. So what we're raising tonight is we are drinking Sweetwater Brewing Company, based out of Atlanta, Georgia. They've got an extra pale Georgia. ale, and it's Georgia. And, and uh, Tim is over in his uh, Willie Nelson phase because it is a 420 is the name of this pale extra pale ale. Uh, which has different connotations in California than I think it does in Atlanta. Oh, yeah. Because normally there would be um, cannabis on the side yes. of this. But instead, it's like a it's like an interstate sign. I so. imagine that's the main interstate, or I think main there's several. One of the major interstates in Atlanta. And honestly, it's delicious. It's really nice and tasty. Uh, you're coming in at a nice 5.7%. It has a little... I, it's it's a, a, a smidge high for a pale ale, but not. It's, it's really good. Uh, highly recommend to anybody. I I love the name Sweetwater. It's got this nice little like trout hopping out of the water right here. Logo, nice little branding. Kind of reminds us of a local craft that we have, which we honestly haven't drank on the show before. Uh, we have yet to have Kawi on the on the show. So I think we had. Maybe we have. So, anyways, just we might have it once, but we need to have some slaunter or something. And then we'll also be indulging. We still have some Racer Fives in the fridge, and so we'll be consuming those as well. So, delicious delicious night of beer. No cleanup on aisle five and no hot topics. We're going to jump right into it. A couple weeks ago, we did a Go to Hell at the Movies episode, and we talked about maybe making a regular thing, and we're going to do it again tonight. That's right. Tonight's movie... So you came over and watched the movie. We've this is one of our both of our favorite movies. I don't know what that says about us. I think that maybe we're really old people. I put it in my top twenty five movies. Yeah, uh, me too. That we me uh, too. submitted for uh, our list. I was I saw this movie in the theater. I think I was ten. Parents took me to see it. I enjoyed it at the time. I saw it when I was somewhere. We we found uh, that it was somewhere between the ages of. Seven to nine, probably in that range, uh, was the first time that I had watched this movie. So I don't attach nostalgia to this movie, but it does have personal connections with me on a faith level as well as uh, it does have connections to my father a little bit. So, yeah, so that's just kind of how I feel towards it. I think it resonated with a lot of people of faith because it was, uh, even in 1981, it was refreshing to see... Hollywood, or this is a British produced film, but see Hollywood put out a movie that was, they just gave an honest, it wasn't, it wasn't, well, some people might find it schmaltzy. If you're a Christian, you wouldn't. It's just an honest, fair portrayal of, of Christianity and a Christian. Yeah, and I think Christianity is a good term for it because I think this movie gets accused of a lot of propaganda 
But us in the United States, if you're listening to this and you're from the United States, you won't really feel a lot of the propaganda as far as, like, national pride for yourself. You may see that, like, there's this there's this element to the movie that, you know, hypes up the Brits a little bit. But that's where it leans into a little bit more. It doesn't necessarily, necessarily lean in on the Christianity side because you need to understand the characters the pe- they're not even the characters these guys their their actual legitimate real life story was that's how they live their lives right so and, if- and we're going to cover that tonight and so i mean you you want to stop beating around the bush and just tell them what the damn movie is so yeah so it's chariots of fire yeah if you haven't seen chariots of fire and then and you want to now go see it for some reason turn this off otherwise it's just going to be full of very very deep spoiler alerts we're gonna break this movie down quite a bit i'll get for those who haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a while i'm going to give a quick synopsis chariots of fire is a 1981 british historical drama it tells the story of two athletes in the 1924 olympics eric little a devout scottish christian who runs for the glory of god and harold abrams an English Jew who runs to overcome prejudice. The film was directed by Hugh Hudson, starred Ian Charlson as Eric Little and Ben Cross as Harold Abrams. It won four Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Score, Original Score by Vangelis. And I believe he had done some work before this, but this was his first big movie, and then, you know, it was... 30 40 50 years of him along with you know john williams and some other he was up there in the pantheon of people who were doing movie scores so that's the quick dirty synopsis uh we have roger ebert's original review review colton's gonna read that because i think it gives more detail into the story and then also gives some uh it's it's a wonderful <laughs> The review itself is just wonderful. It, it it I think it expresses the why so many people love love the movie. And then like I said, a little more detail into what kind of goes on in the script. And if you're hearing a dog bark, that's the intrepid Jojo barking at the pup our puppy tank. Go ahead, Colton. Yeah, so um uh, I will do this as best as I can without trying to interject, although I do see a uh, Greek composer in here that you are gonna have me pronounce that I definitely will butcher. So. Oh, it just ignore his first name. It's that's Vangelis, but okay. But right. yeah, I, that's why no one says his last, is the the other name because no one can say it. So the, uh, Roger Ebert, he said, "This is strange. I have no interest in running, and am not a partisan in the British class system. Then why should I have been so deeply moved by Chariots of Fire, a British film that has running in class as its subjects?" I've toyed with that question since I first saw this remarkable film in May of 1981 at the Keynes. Film Festival, and I believe the answer is rather simple. Like many great films, Chariots of Fire takes its nominal subjects as occasions for much larger statements about human nature. This is a movie that has a great many running scenes. It is also a movie about British class distinctions in the years after World War I, years in which the establishment was trying to piece itself back together after the carnage in France. It is about two outsiders, a Scot, who is the son of missionaries in China, and a Jew whose father is an immigrant from Lithuania. And it is about how both of them use running as a means of asserting their dignity. 
but it is about more than them, and a lot of the film's greatness is hard to put into words. Chariots of Fire creates deep feelings among many members of its audience, and it does that not so much with its story or even its characters as with particular moments that are very sharply seen and heard. Seen in photography that pays grave attention to the precise look of a human face during stress, pain, defeat, victory, and joy. Heard in one of the most remarkable soundtracks of any film in a long time with music by the Greek composer Vangelis. His compositions for Chariots of Fire are as evocative and as suited to the material as the different but also perfectly matched scores of such films as The Third Man and Zorba the Greek. The music establishes the tone for the movie, which is one of nostalgia, for a time when two young and naturally gifted British athletes ran fast enough to bring home medals from the 1924 Paris Olympics. The nostalgia is an important aspect of the film, which opens with the 1979 memorial service for one of the men, Harold Abrahams, and then flashes back 60 years to his first day at Cambridge University. We are soon introduced to the film's other central character, the Scotsman, Eric Little. The film's underlying point of view is a poignant one, those men were once young and fast and strong, and they won glory on the sports field, but now they are dead, and we see them as figures from long ago. The film is unabashedly and patriotically British in its regard for these two characters, but it also contains sharp jabs at the British class system, which made the Jewish Abrahams feel like an outsider who could sometimes feel the lack of sincerity in a handshake and place the Protestant Little in the position of having to explain to the peeved Prince of Wales why he could not, in conscience, run on the Sabbath. Both men are essentially proving themselves, their worth, their beliefs on the track. But Chariots of Fire takes an unexpected approach to many of its running scenes. It does not, until near the film's end, stage them as contests to writing or to ring, to ring cheers from the audience. Instead, it sees them as efforts, as endeavors by individual runners. It tries to capture the exhilaration of running as a celebration of the spirit. Two of the best moments in the movie: a moment in which Little defeats Abraham's, who agonizingly replays the defeat over and over in his memory, and a moment in which Abraham's old Italian Arabic track coach, banned from the Olympic Stadium, learns who won his man's race. First he bangs his fist through his straw boater, then he sits on his bed and whispers, My son. All of the contributions to the film are distinguished. Neither Ben Cross as Abrahams nor Lan Charlson as Little are accomplished runners, but they are accomplished actors, and they act the running scenes convincingly. Ian Holm, as Abraham's coach, quietly dominates every scene he is in. There are perfectly observed cameos by John Giglid and Lindsay Anderson as masters of Cambridge College and by David Yellen as a foppish, young, foolish young Prince of Wales. These parts and others make up a greater whole. It's such a different review than what we see reviews today and actually that was a pretty glowing review from what the other reviews you and i saw because the app we were watching them on you could you could see all the rotten tomatoes well how rotten tomatoes is collected all the reviews at the time and even the ones where they got a positive score it was kind of like a backhanded thing oh yeah it's really nostalgic and cheesy but you know it was a lot of fun 
Which is funny coming from an American critic, because isn't that what most American movies are? So anyway, I digress. Okay. So real quick, uh, they mentioned Eric Little, Harold Abrams. There's actually five young Brits. Two are clearly the center of the movie, but there's five Brits in total, part of the larger circle that the movie is focusing on as this team of British track and field athletes that go to the 1924 Olympics. And that's Eric Little, Harold Abrams, Lord Andrew Lindsay, Aubrey Montague, and Henry Stallard. So where do you want to start with this? Well, we've got various... Uh, a lot. We have a lot of the same observations Ebert had. I think we can delve into those in a little more detail and then some other things that he didn't mention. So I'd say first, I mean, it's something I would, I would want to get out of the way as far as why this is an important film for us, I think is like a good spot to put at, uh, to kind of put a pin in. Why this film kind of stood out to us, why we chose this for the podcast tonight, and just kind of uh, move in from there. I think one, uh, I, I don't think it can be denied that uh, the reason why I as an eight or nine year old would have watched this movie in 2003 is because my father was a runner. He wasn't a sprinter um, as these guys compete in. But uh, there's just something about the track community that kind of came around this movie even, even today. Uh, a modern movie that maybe a lot of people can kind of gather around where you also have this kind of propaganda nostalgia um, is if anybody has seen McFarland USA, which actually lives or which actually is a town that resides about 40 miles South of us. Yeah. And my dad actually ran on the cross country team or the COS cross country team with uh, two, with the twins from uh, oh, wow. McFarland USA. So, so for me, I do feel connections to my father through watching this movie. Um, I remember watching it as a kid um, and being inspired. But then as I grew up, uh, my freshman year of high school, I actually picked up the book that was written after the movie that just basically gave the entire story um, in a book form. And I read it, and then I rewatched the movie. And I just remember crying as a freshman in high school over Eric Little and just how much this guy gave up and how I felt he was so misunderstood by a lot of the people that he was around during this time. And so I don't relate to him. Um, I don't have the same kind of situation growing up, but he was a character that you can definitely, um, that was human and that, I don't know, you, you believed in and it was, it was a very strong character, even though it's a real man. And I mean, like, I'm sure we're going to talk about his life doing more research into his life was something that was important to me growing up. And so I did more and, and it's very powerful what he did. And also very, it's just very sad how it all ended. Yeah. You and I would both agree that his flavor of Christianity wouldn't necessarily be ours. It would not mix very strict Presbyterian. It was church of Scotland, but basically Presbyterian. So he was a strict observer in the movie He's a strict observer of the, of the Sabbath. I'm sure he was, but the, he's a strict observer of the Sabbath, and he goes out of his way to point out to a, a young boy who's playing football on a Sunday what day it is. He shouldn't be playing on a Sunday. and uh, He just didn't want him to play a girl's sport. 
And then, yeah, it's not mentioned here, but he he was a prolific uh, rugby player as well. He was, which is how what people actually knew him. If whatever fame he had, they knew him as a rugby player, not as a in sprinter in Scotland. And yeah, and then you know his father's. There's a couple discussions with his father, and you can just tell that you know these are very fundamentalist is probably the wrong term. Something fundamentalist, very traditional in their faith, very strict adherence to the rules and all that kind of stuff. So let me transition to Roger Ebert mentioned I'm glad he mentioned it because in a lot of the reviews I read of the movie there was a lot of the reviews basically said this movie was a like a shallow schmaltzy movie and every time I read that I don't I think I think to myself you didn't you weren't really paying attention to the movie which is funny because the whole thing about being a critic is you're supposed to be picking up on all these like subliminal things that great directors are not telling you and they act as if there's not a lot of subliminal things in there, uh, or su- subtle, not subliminal, but subtle things in the movie. Ebert pointed out one that I mentioned when we were, or when it was starting, was this sense of trying to patch the country back together after this huge trauma of World War One, because they had lost an entire generation of young men, and that's made clear. That's again subtly. Well, it's not so subtly. I mean, if, well, if you're not quite sure. It's not a huge point. If you're, if you're American and, you know, not all Americans can fully understand what Brits are saying, it is a thing, you know. So one of the early scenes in the movie is basically like a freshman dinner at Cambridge. And there's there's this huge board up on the wall with all the dead alumni who died in World War One, And the provost, I don't know what his title was, president of the college, basically tells these boys it's it's your job to now step in and replace them i take the war list and i run down it name after name which i cannot read and which we who are older than you cannot hear without emotion names which will be only names to you the new college but which to us summon up face after face, full of honesty and goodness, zeal and vigor and intellectual promise. The flower of a generation, the glory of England, and they died for England and all that England stands for. And now by tragic necessity, their dreams have become yours. And that's kind of built in the film of these guys know. I'm not sure. I don't think Eric Little did, because he's he's not upper crust. No, he. And didn't. as I told you, World War One really hit the upper class elite. They went out. They were the ones that went out like the gangbusters and were all eager to go fight the Huns. And they got hammered pretty hard. That and and then. The lower classes lost complete trust in them for getting them into this just absolutely horrendous, horrendous war that Americans just, unless you've actually studied it, just have don't fathom. We focus on World War II, but you really have to understand World War II to understand and understand World War One to fully understand World War Two. And there's this underlying, I think, with the five, well, the four, the four Keys College runners. There's this sense that. They have to live up to being Britain's future, and this is our chance to kind of turn a corner after the debacle of World War One and kind of get moving forward. 
that really adds a lot to the movie if you're if you're aware of it. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of hints of things that bring into the movie. The United States is viewed as the bad guy, so to speak, in the movie. And it's not like a bad guy. It's just you know, like we are the. Uh, we're the, we're, the, we're the Russians. We're the arrogant antagonists. <laughs> we're, the, we're the Russians in this movie. We have the high-tech right. uh, warm-ups and all that kind of stuff. Just go watch The Miracle and we're the Russians. Like, right. <laughs> it's like this is exactly. who we are. We're the favorites walking in. The United States had just come back off of a huge win in the Olympics and the Olympics prior. Where, and especially in track and field where they just dominated. They just reevaluated how a lot of those sports were were being done and so and we had the fastest runner in the world we had the fastest runners in the world and so we talked about the five other the the five guys that are being noticed only one of the other guys in the group besides abrams and little actually wins a medal and that sir what's his name oh Lindsay. Yeah, sir. Andrew Lindsay. He gets the silver medal in the hurdles. And so, again, this is this whole element here where you get this. So, again, as a United States person, if you are if you are pro America and that's like your thing, you're I would I would gut check yourself a little bit before you go and watch this movie. <laughs> okay? I just know that we are we are not the bad guys, but we are the guys that are there that are going to thwart them okay that is uh, uh we are gonna keep these gentlemen from their dreams <laughs> so that's what i like i w- i was watching it and people were like this is british nostalgia and i was like they didn't take away they didn't take away anything from or where it's like this propaganda or i was like it did they didn't make them win like you know it was like they told the true story uh one of the guys who was one of abram's uh roommates he was the steeplechaser. He ends up like falling and is not able, and uh, he's not able to get in the medal contention. Another guy, I don't. What is uh, what does Montague run? Uh, Montague runs the Montague runs the steeplechase. I think he uh, runs the steeplechase. Oh, he runs the steeplechase. There's one I don't remember. Lindsay runs the hurdles. He, he runs the hurdles and one other sprint. And he ran the four hundred, but he gave up the four hundred to Little. Right. And then Henry Stallard ran, I think he was like a 800 or he was more of a long distancer. And then... I think he meddled too. I think he won a... Anyway. And Abrams, they don't cover it as well. So this may be one of those things where they're like, oh, well, they hardly covered it. Abrams doesn't win the 200. Right. He gets blown out. Well, it's just so funny for an American critic to complain about Nostalgia. Well, it's just you nostalgia because you, know, you know if somebody had done. I, I think there was a movie, the Jackie, the, the Jesse Owens story. Of course, it's nostalgic. So, yeah, and I mean, it feels good, and so let the Brits have their day. No one wants a realistic. Uh, it's called the documentary. Yeah, but, then, but no one wants though, like then a, like those a, are biased, right? Like. I mean, <laughs> they pull it off in Moneyball, but usually what they really wanted was they wanted. They wanted Ken Burns to do uh, <laughs> to do Chariots of Fire. Yeah. <laughs> no, so that's a great element. I think... Well, Let's talk okay. about Abrams. So Abrams is... Because he's a complicated cat. 
First of all, he's not very likable. No. Well, he's not he's not unlikable from a viewer, but he's not also likable. Now, he's clearly likable within his peers. Yes, he does get along with his peers. But uh, he's called a narcissist by, what was his coach? I think his coach called him a narcissist. He what basically is, called him a narcissist. What his wife also called or, him No, 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 not a narcissist. He or called him a... Uh, wife or his girlfriend. Neurotic. Yeah, he's just very egocentric. Ebert mentioned it. It's subtle in some parts and very glaring in others that he's dealing with this. It's sprinkled throughout the movie of him being Jewish. There's this, this sense of, well, he's a Jew, but at least he's, at least he's our Jew. <laughs> There's the scene where the Keys college president, and I don't know what John Gilgood was. I don't know if he's president of Cambridge or what, but... They're having this conversation about him, and he asked the Keys College guy, you know, what's his family background? Who's Abrahams? What do you know about him? Repton chap. Jewish. His father's a financier in the city. Financier? What's that supposed to mean, I wonder? I imagine he lends money. Is that clear? So right there, if you know anything about Jewish tropes in Europe, He's just like, whoop, oh, he's a financier. Okay, yeah, all right. Yeah, they went straight to Shakespeare for that one. Yeah. He takes a pound of flesh uh, from anybody, so careful with doing deals. There's also, though, in the the end of the first scene where we meet him. The first scene is he and Aubrey meet at the train station on their way to, way to college. They share a taxi together. Uh, they end up at school. They're checking into their dorms, and the man of the house... It's Mr. Dursley. Makes a joke, (laughs) makes a comment about him not fighting in the, about his commission and basically gives him a hard time because he didn't fight in the war. So you can see there's all these little things that he's piling upon himself. He's very defensive in the moment and says, well, you know, I served and he's got a good uh, retort to kind of being ribbed at for not, for not fighting. But you can see it's one of these things that he's, foisted on his shoulders the weight of the world that he keeps adding i'm a jew they don't believe in me i served i served my commission as an officer in the war but i didn't fight or i didn't get there in time and it's just one thing and i want to be the fastest but there's this scott who's scott's who's even faster than me and he just keeps cramming on the whole world on top of him yeah i think for abrams it's really hard and you see it when you watch the movie. And I, I remember growing up, uh, like I said, I, I watched this when I was a freshman in high school, and I remember not liking Abrams' character at all. I was like, I felt like Abrams was the bad guy. He's just very egocentric. He just kind of has all this stuff. But then as we watched it the other night, it was, you can see that this is a guy who is putting on this weight of the world upon his own shoulders and he's out there to prove something. He has this chip on his shoulder that he needs to prove who he is and that it matters that much to him. And he wants to prove that the fact that he's Jewish doesn't matter. His father was a Jew. His brother is successful as a Jew. He gets into Cambridge and yet he's still not considered a part of the elite. No matter what he does, he's still considered this Jewish person. And so he wants to be successful and so he's like so i'm gonna i'm gonna do it through running people don't think i can do it but i'm gonna do it through running and so he pours his heart and soul into running and he trains harder than anybody as far as we see in the movie 
He trains harder than anybody else. He works harder. He runs to social events. He runs all over campus on a regular basis. He has a chip on his shoulder to prove. And what's funny is that his peers accept him. Right. Again, the the fact that his peers, particularly what appears to be his best friend, Aubrey Montague, who seems like a very sweet individual, the fact that they like him is what makes him likable. Because, like you said, beyond that, and then one or two scenes where, you know, he's he's having a cr- moment of crisis because he's lost a little, and he's pouting, and his girlfriend's starting to think like, ooh, who am I dating here? This guy's a crazy person. He, he's a child. He says, you know, it's not because I lost a little. He's He's a fine young, he's a fine man. There's that and two other little scenes where he's gracious and magnanimous to Eric Little, and then it just it just softens it up. Otherwise, you're just like, dude, lighten up. Well, and it's like, but also, but there's also elements throughout the movie that let you know that Abrams is he is constantly seeking recognition and trying to be the best in every single category of his life. He tries to go for the most beautiful girl at the show. This is his friend's girl that his friend has been fantasizing over yeah. for like years, apparently, uh, which is Montague. And he goes and he asks her out. He's like, I'm going to go ask her out. And so he will. And so he does. And so he wins her over. He's got to have the best one of that. He's got to be the best runner. He's got to be the top of his class at Cambridge. He's the lead in HMS Pinafore. Right. And <laughs> so it's like there's this thing where, again, he has this chip on his shoulder to where he has to be the best. He has to be the best. He has to be the best. And even when Montague goes and sees him, Montague goes and sees him as he's getting warmed up for his 100 finals, uh, his 100-meter dash finals. And he's sitting there, and he's just moping over the fact that he lost the 200. Um, And that was, like, a huge deal. And so Montague is sitting there, and he's talking about how he envies him and all that kind of stuff, and that this pressure isn't on him and all that kind of stuff. And so... That's a huge moment. Well, he's he's moping, but he's 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 lamenting, but he's also almost saying like, I, if I win, I don't, I I'm scared that if I win, I'm not gonna have this. It's gonna remove this chip um off my shoulder, and am I gonna be the same guy? You, Aubrey, are my most complete man. You're brave, compassionate, kind. A content man. That's your secret. Contentment. I'm 24 and I've never known it. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what it is I'm chasing. Aubrey, old chap, I'm scared. Sam and I, we labored, rowed and bullied for this day in day out you've seen us chuckled over us i'll be bound out in all weathers madmen and for what i was beaten out of sight in the 200 then that paddock tricked me in the semi now in one hour's time i'll be out there again I'll raise my eyes and look down that corridor, four feet wide with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? 
Aubrey, I've known the fear of losing. But now I'm almost too frightened to win. What I liked about that scene and this movie is that this movie portrays a very classical view of male friendship in that these guys are very open with each other in a way where a lot of modern men would be like, ooh, that's too much sharing. Yeah, like that guy got oiled up right now. <laughs> that's not what I'm uh, he's, very, he's very vulnerable to M- Montague. And you can tell in other scenes where, that, where Lindsay's talking that these guys are all sharing and in, in a way where uh, I don't think any of us these days actually share. And I think to some extent we kind of, we miss out on that. We'll start bouncing around between other observations and favorite scenes. He mentioned the scene with Abrams' coach, Mr. Musabini. And after he wins, they show him win the race. And then they cut back to Sam, who's sitting in a hotel outside the stadium. You know, there's no radio with a broadcast or anything. And he knows he wins because the British flag comes up. And he has a little celebration, like you said. He pops his hand through his what did he, what did he boat call straw, his straw, boat, straw boat, his... straw boat hat, and then and then whispers, "My son." I get moved by that every single time, and I'm not sure why. One can guess, but there's no level of intimacy that's been shared at that point on screen between these two guys. No, definitely not. But clearly, there's something in the relationship that, and I don't know that it's because. He sees himself in the same kind of drive and all that kind of thing. I mean, again, also understanding, again, he is this Italian Arab. Yeah, I think they said where he's from is a was it Algeria? I think he was Algerian. I don't remember, but he's he's Arab, he's half Italian, half Arabic. And there's a joke about that in the movie. Is that I mean, gonna, well? It's a joke. I mean, the so Abrams is being put on trial over the fact that he is seeking professional help outside of Cambridge. He's and become it, a professional. But they don't they don't have a problem if he seeks anybody that's British, but he's giving him the school a bad name because he is he is the guy that he is talking to is Italian. And they're like, and he's Italian. Please tell me he has some other ancestry, is basically what they talk about. And then Abrams, right before he leaves, he says, Oh wait, yes, I do remember. Um, yes, he uh <laughs> they come from Saudi Arabia. Or whatever he's like, he's like, Yes, his family is from Saudi Arabia. And then uh, literally their eyes like uh, just like nearly pop out of their sockets at the mention of the fact that he was Arab. Um, Arab. So it's just very interesting. Yeah, that was another... He was actually... He did have that background. And it that adds to the whole element of the outsiders trying to crash the party of the British social establishment. And so you've got this outsider who's working with another outsider. And they're not really working within the the rules that have been set by the gilded class. Which is funny because one of my favorite, what we talked about, the favorite character. Our, yeah, our, our favorite character is... is the, the comic relief, which is Sir Lindsay. <laughs> Sir Lindsay, who's a, who's a lord of and some who, sort. He's a lord of some sort. You see this lavish I call establishment the, that he lives on. I call him the British Gatsby. The guy is phenomenal. I would love to have a bottle of champagne with that guy. <laughs> That guy in the movie is just, he's so laid back. He doesn't give two shits about anything that's going on ever, except in the hurdles race. Yeah, he seems as if he's like Spicoli from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. He's just gliding through life. Life's a party, and 
And and that's and what's beautiful about it is that he's able to make friends with everyone. Yeah, so he, like he goes. And he's up certainly and, accomplished. Yeah, I don't. Know. Well, and I but, mean, like he goes and he's he, just he talks with little, like no problem. He uh, he has. Uh, he has a wonderful moment with Abrams when Abrams is attempting the race at the beginning in the courtyard. Oh yeah, and and there's this huge thing about it where they have to they have to get around the Cambridge courtyard within the twelve rings of the bell, and he runs it with him. And this is something where you hadn't met this character yet, and he shows up and he's like, "Hey, let's I'll run it with you," and. He runs it in like his trousers. He runs it in his pants and uh, suspenders and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's and then and then and then he makes this huge appearance at the end of the movie. Well, wait. I mean, but and then he runs the hundred meter hurdles. Oh, yeah, he runs the hundred meter hurdles, and like we've been saying, he goes through the movie like life's a party, and it, whatever happens, happens. And there's this phenomenal moment. Ebert had a nice description of it where he's setting in. It's not the blocks. They didn't have blocks. Whatever. He's setting in his starting. Setting in his holes that start, he for starting, Starter market. Mar- yeah, holes. And there's a look of, oh, shit. <laughs> and it's amazing. It is. Because the guy has it's, never not had a smile from ear to ear the entire freaking movie. Yeah, he's like, this is it. Now it's not fun and games anymore. And he gave it his all, and he still took second place. And so he gets a medal, and so, and then what you were going to, you go for And it. then the scene that Eber talked about, there's, and we got to talk about the scene just in general, because that's a huge, powerful scene, particularly as a Christian, and not for the reasons I think most people fixate on. At least I, I find it the, the most, there's a couple lines in there that really hit home, but Eric Little's trying to, he, he can't race on the Sabbath. There's a qualifying race for the 100 meter. Uh, the dash. powers that be are trying to get him to recant basically his his religious beliefs, his Christian beliefs. All because. And race for the glory of England. For the glory of England. The glory of the crown. A, because they say that they could probably convince the Olympic Committee because they are the committee. Yes, we are the committee. <laughs> that they could reschedule but they would have to ask the french and that's not good press yeah we were not gonna ask the frogs because the frogs still owe us from world war one so we're not but that's what they said so they said we could probably get it to move to a different date and little says i would love that right but then they were like no not no we can't ask them like it's a rope-a-dope that's right because then that shows that we have no power so they're still trying to talk him into it prince of wales does a who it was everybody knows i'm sorry but he's a sniveling amoral person anyway trying to talk him out of it there's one individual who's somewhat a little bit sympathetic and one who's i can we find out later is very sympathetic to his position and he's digging in his heels and digging in his heels and then lord Lindsay shows up out of nowhere and does the quintessential english gentleman thing to do he gives him his event he gives him his event. Your Highness, Lord Duggan, gentlemen. I do apologize for barging in like this. Fact is, I am fully aware of Eric's dilemma. And I wondered if I could be so bold as to suggest a possible solution. Go. Yes. Another day, another race. What the devil's that supposed to mean? It's quite simple, as a matter of fact, sir. 400 meters. It's on Thursday. I've already got my medal. 
So why didn't you let Eric take my place in the quarter? Which is odd because, I mean, like if we all look at Olympic Games nowadays, and even if you understood how all this went, right, you would sit there and you'd be like, okay, well, why was he chosen for this event? And it's still odd, right? Like there's no Olympic trials. Yeah, I read, I read, I was reading stuff on it that they didn't have trials back then. You just basically did a lot, like things like the British Championships, but then it wasn't like an automatic qualifier. The committee still picked who they wanted to go. Where for us, it's like, nope, you just, that's what you did and you're going. Right. And so that, that begs the question, in my opinion, where it's like you're chosen as fan favorites is basically what, right. like you're chosen because like you went around and you did a bunch of stuff and a lot of people gave you praise for it and you did all this. And so it's like, okay, this is what we're choosing. We're choosing our fan favorites to go over here. And so it almost kind of was like a celebrity event. Like it's, these are our top celebrities that are competing in these areas, not who's the best at these. Now we create it the opposite way. And so that may be a little bit more difficult to detach is that we choose our top athletes and then we create these fan, not fantastical stories. These are stories that actually happen, but we get you down to, if you watch any Olympic games, there's a heart wrenching story for every single event if you really dig deep enough and every event that's on prime time, they will give you, they will give you a, Oh yeah. A, a, some sort Al Troutwig of, will do his five minute essay. I wish so. it's essay. great. Yeah. It's fun. It's part of the, it's part of the Olympics. It's a lot of fun. You have never sat around for two weeks um, in the winter, in the summer, every four years, I highly recommend it. The Olympics is a phenomenal time to sit there and just watch athletics, learn really cool stories about American people who have gotten the opportunity or even – and so, a lot of times, sometimes now, it's not even just Americans. I was like – I saw one about the 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 British diver right? Uh, who had this really cool backstory about what it was for him to come out – um, and be a homosexual and and have this whole thing where, it, again, trying to compete with the Chinese and all this kind of stuff. And so that was a really cool story at the Tokyo uh, – co- really cool story at the Tokyo Olympics. And so there was, there's a lot of really cool stuff out there I'd highly recommend. And the Winter Olympics is super cool. I was like, I don't understand why a lot more people don't watch the Winter Olympics. The Winter Olympics has such cool sports where gravity is involved. Yeah, I prefer Winter Olympics. I've oh, my gosh. Or been- guns. The yeah, the biathlon people, come on! Like the, the ski jump, yeah. Oh man, speed skating. But yeah, he comes in and does. It's like it's it's kind of this moment where the British royal class is stepping in and doing. It's a symbolic of the, of it of it doing the right thing again. On top of the fact that the British royal class literally just tried to persuade him. Well, uh, yeah, there's right cuz so, cuz that's the thing that right there the pressure that little is getting is is he gets asked several times about his yes for god but what about for your country and what about for your future king I was desperate enough to try anything Well, all that being understood, we decided to invite you in for a little chat to see if there's any way that we can Help resolve the situation. There's only one way to resolve the situation. That's for this man to change his mind and run. Don't state the obvious, Cadogan. We have to explore ways in which we can help this young man to reach that decision. I'm afraid there are no ways, sir. I won't run on the Sabbath, and that's final. 
I intended to confirm this with Lord Birkenhead tonight. Even before you called me up in front of this inquisition of yours. Don't be impertinent, little. The impertinence lies, sir, with those who seek to influence a man to deny his beliefs. On the contrary, little. We're appealing to your beliefs. In your country, in your king. Your loyalty to them. Yeah, yeah. In my day, it was king first, God after. Yes, and the war to end wars bitterly proved your point. God made countries. God makes kings and the rules by which they govern. Yeah, they said the, a lot. Yeah. It's like three times that they say your future king, your future king, because the future king is sitting there and asking, but guess what? He's not actually the future king. Right. Yeah, it's thrown up in his face about the future king. Is your arrogance that big and all that kind of thing? The scene is wrapped up with a wonderful side. The room breaks up. Lindsay goes and uh, talks to Little. I'm sure Little's, you know, saying a million thank yous. Uh, the old crusty fart, who's we can never remember his name. He just sits there and says one word things. He's, Sourpuss go talks to Prince of Wales, and then the head of the Olympic Committee and this other guy. They come off to the side, and the head of the Olympic Committee. Steady moment, George. Mm. Thank God for Lindsay. I thought the lad had us beaten. He did have us beaten, Effie. And thank God he did. I don't quite follow you. Well, the lad, as you call him, is a, a true man of principle and a true athlete. His speed is a mere extension of his life, its force. We sought to sever his running from himself. For his country's sake, yes. No sake is worth that, Effie. Least of all, a guilty national pride. And again, it's a, it's a zinger at World War I. Because these guys are wanting, it's again, it's a reminder that the, of what opens the movie is World War One is the table setting, the underlying table setting for the whole movie. Yeah, the Brits are wanting to go to Europe to show everybody, including those doughboys from America, that they're back, and they're upset because one of their golden boys won't run for national pride. And right in line with what is said often on this podcast, who gives a damn about national pride, particularly when it's in direct opposition to what the religious belief is? You and I don't hold the Sabbath strictly. I don't know that very Amer many Americans do. But I sh sure as hell have a lot of respect for, for those who do. Yeah, and I think this is a good time to transition to Eric Little. We talked about the class system that kind of uh, riddles kind of abram's life and and that kind of stuff and and we look at his friends and the people that he surrounds himself with and then we've got eric little if you haven't gotten the chance eric little is a phenomenal um human being when it comes to the faith and he was a man torn between two and this is where so tim talked about how he gets you know, it's hard to not get emotional. I cannot help but get emotional whenever Eric Little runs um, at the end of the movie. And it talks about how he feels God's pleasure when he runs. And what's so funny, from a running standpoint, I'm not an expert on running. My father is. And I mean that in a really... I, I don't mean that, like, <coughs> if anybody on here is, like... This this guy Colton is going off about his father, and I was like, no, I I 
I truly do mean that my father is an expert on the subject. And anybody who would ever watch Eric Little run would know that he ran very ugly. And so the acting that they did on Eric Little is really phenomenal. Because yes, he ran really ugly. It would not fly in a 100-meter dash or a 400-meter dash. Oh, that's to this the day. irony. His nickname was the Flying Scotsman. Yeah, it would not fly <laughs> today. Because he did like a little, like, he does an arm twirl. Yeah. Um, at his sides, which again is not very aerodynamic. He throws his head back, and which we all know that that's not good. It's not good form uh, for her runner. And so he still had this very ugly run, and, and it was something that everybody talked about where it was like, uh, even the Americans, they evaluate his run. And he has this this way about him where it's like he's this animal is what he gets described as. But nonetheless, in, at least in the movie, the way that they portray it is that when he throws his head back, he kind of smiles a little bit and he is he feels God's pleasure. And we look at the Sabbath and we look at this huge implication for him, this calling that he has. Again, what he's planning on doing is after he's done running, he's going to go and do ministry work in China. For those of you that are unfamiliar, uh, he, uh, China gets occupied by the Japanese in World War II. He gets put in a camp. Um and he gets a brain tumor, um, and he dies of it um, during World War II. He would put on track events for the prisoners um, to where they could all race and run. He would give up meals um, to other prisoners so that way they could have nutrition um, and that kind of stuff. A really amazing man was Eric Little. Um, and we have really cool stories, um, you know, like for those that have seen or have read Unbroken or um, or things of that nature. Eric Little is one of those in my book that are just juggernauts of the faith who had so, so much dedication to the mission of Jesus Christ and the love for thy neighbor that is unparalleled he did amazing amazing things for the faith and when you look at the movie he has this situation in um and you look at kind of the scots and what they have to go through right you have these elitists out here in cambridge and they have their roads and their paths and all this kind of stuff and and in scotland's they and in scotland with eric little they have their tiny homes they have their tiny teams. He runs for the Scottish, the Scotland team. And they have like, <laughs> there's a joke that's made about amateurs uh, in, on the Scotland national team because all of the French that they're going up against in their race that they're doing when he gets knocked down are all men. And then half of the Scottish uh, national team for the track team Half of them are, they look like they're 12-year-old boys. Yeah. And they make a comment about amateurs and, and that kind of stuff. And so it's this really awesome thing to see. And when Little does his training, he's running over mountaintops, like uh, in between church services. The moors. 
Yeah, and so that's what he's doing. Um, and so it's this really, this kind of uh, country versus city vibe. Uh, almost like, again, I've already brought it up once today, but I mean, it's the... Well, no, I said the miracle earlier, but really what it is, it's uh, it's Rocky Four all over again, where you have Eric Little, this guy who's training with the Rocks, and then you have Abrams, who is the Russian. Anyways, uh, you have very much this Abrams is working out with this trainer and all that kind of stuff, kind of element for the 100-meter dash. And it's very much, and especially with the music that kind of comes in the background, you're very much getting a Rocky kind of vibe where uh, Abrams is the Russian and Eric Little, who's, like, just running over the mountains of Scotland in his, like, church clothes, is uh, Rocky training with the rocks in the middle of Siberia, you know? So. Well, that kind of goes back to the scene we were talking about before where Abrams is getting accused of professionalism by the college guys. In one sense, he's doing a lot of the stuff. I don't know if it's as scientific as what the Brit- the Americans are doing, but... He's doing a lot of that same kind of training. And so there's this and there's this implication that it's unseemly to be doing these extra things rather than just winning on one's natural talents. Yeah, so Eric, Eric Little is a juggernaut of the faith for sure. And throughout the movie, he's using this as to be... A, to expand or just augment his ministry. So he's preaching after meets that he's doing in the, in the UK. Yes. yes. Uh, there's this wonderful homily he gives at the Presbyterian church in Paris, the day he's supposed to be racing. Yes. And it's this, this soaring, quietly thundering reading from Isaiah of how God will tear down those, you know, who, Stand in his way and... And during that reading in the movie, all of the Brits are losing all of the right. races. Which is an interesting... I, 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 I noticed that too. I'm sure it's something I noticed before. That was something... That I, because you connect with these other guys, Harold and and and, and uh, Montague. And you, you, it almost seems unfair that they're losing because they've been the, the guys who've just been kind of out... Outcast, right? It was like, when do they get their time to shine? He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no strength, he increaseth might. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So last little thought about parts of the movie. His sister, Jenny. She's the real... Ginny is a shrew. She's the real antagonist of the movie. They overdo her character. How did you not say her name three times just now, though? Oh, Ginny. 
<laughs> he said, there's like a moment in the film where Jenny, Eric's like Jenny. looking at his sister and he's like, Jenny, 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 don't fret. Jenny, don't fret. But I do fret. But I do fret. I do fret for you, Eric. I do fret for you, Eric. I fret for you. I fret for your mission. (laughs) She, look, her character is overdone. It's uh, I find a little uncomfortable. It's like, are they are these two married or they brother or sister? It is like. You were way hey, too up in my business. Hey, don't act like you haven't seen one of those relationships in your <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> Where the cousins or the the brother-sister duo just seem a little too close. <laughs> nah, I wasn't even acknowledging that. Oh, okay. Damn. Watch, uh, yeah, go watch Righteous Gemstones instead. Um, yeah, she's just way, way too up. And she's too uptight and way too strict about what's got to be done and insisting on how he should live his life. It's, I think she's used as a vehicle to kind of show that he's got some balance and it's a way for him to explain why he's running and get the, get the message out to the audience that he when he runs, he feels God's pleasure. He's When he runs, he feels like he's expanding, he's making it, uh, easier for him to speak and do his mission and so I believe that God made me for a purpose for China but he also made me fast and when I run I feel his pleasure to give it up would be to hold him in contempt you were right it's not just fun to win it's to honor him. I wish they'd done a little bit, a, a different way of doing that. It, it's not, it's not a subtle vehicle at all, and I, I don't like it. I never did. She's the antagonist of the film. We said that it was the, we said that it was the Americans, but I'm, I'm taking it all back. It's her. God, if she hadn't said a word, he would have made it through. No, that's not true. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that her. Uh, her character is meant to kind of convey this internal conflict outwardly with how he feels about the mission and and get that whole situation set up. She might... I I got a little fun fact about her later. She might have also been a vehicle that a lot of people were aware who British who'd seen this movie might have been aware of where there was some pushback within the Christian community of him running. And I'm not talking on Sunday. I'm saying like, now running's a, a child sport, and it's not you know it's not meant for serious adults who are supposed to be spreading the kingdom of God. And I think there's that's that, that's part of the element of this story of I've got to go do I, I can only do this and only this. I've got to do my mission. And that's the only thing I can do. I can't put that off aside and still follow what God wants. God wants by doing this other thing, which seems frivolous. Which is something that's interesting because we go to an Anabaptist church where Anabaptism is rampant with people that do that all the time. Right. And which is something that is very commendable. It's not not spoken about in Scripture. Uh, it's, right. it's actually praised in Scripture. It's very difficult to do. Right. There is a lot of good that a lot of people can do by doing what they do on a normal daily basis for the kingdom of God. Um, 
you have to remember that when we're looking at Acts, Acts especially. So you look at you look at the teachings of Jesus, and Jesus does a lot of his teachings about. Yes, there is something to be said about you know the the camel through the eye of the needle, and the rich man entering he- the kingdom of heaven. You have uh, different situations where like the the lady who gives up all that she has in her coins when she tithes. Um, there's lots of situations where there is you give everything that you have to the church. Well, it's Paul's justification for not getting married because children and marriage are just are ultimately a distraction from the mission. And so when we look at Acts, there is this idea that, again, understanding that the people that the people in Acts are such firm believers in a way that they could not, even the people that are removed from Jesus, like they never saw Jesus as their savior, like they never saw him ever. Let's say they're not one of the disciples. And when I say the disciples, I mean the greater 200 plus people that followed Jesus around. Right. I'm talking, these are people that have never seen Jesus never they are just getting this from word of mouth they believed it so much that Jesus was coming back like within the next couple of days and I know that that's how Jesus wants us to live our lives as that he is coming back the truth is is that we have all removed ourselves from feeling that right majority of people live their lives and where if Jesus comes back we don't live there we don't live our lives as being like Jesus is coming back, so therefore we don't need any of our stuff because he could come back any second. We live our lives as in when we say that, what it means now is Jesus could come back any second, so don't be caught doing something that you shouldn't be doing. It's more like when your mom comes home and she n- notices that you didn't dethaw the chicken when she asked you to earlier. Okay. <laughs> That's kind of how we treat Jesus now as opposed to how it was where it's like, mom's coming home. It's going to be the greatest thing ever. Right. Okay? Like as a toddler or something, so to speak. So that's kind of how that works. And a Baptist are notorious for going the first route where it is like, I need to live my life as if it, Jesus is coming back and it's not, I'm doing something reprehensible. It is, I need to celebrate it. And he's coming back any second. And so that's kind of how I feel about this when when Christians give feedback on this, where they're like, all you have to do is dedicate to the mission and that kind of stuff. Guys, I met someone four years ago. And I think that it's really easy for us as Christians to see long-term missions people and just be like, wow, that's really cool. Or that's like, and you create distance from it. I had a panic attack for this guy. I met this guy at Hume Lake Christian Camps, which is a Christian camp that's very, that's one of the greatest, or that is one of the most popular Christian camps in the state of California. I met him there. I was there helping out another youth group from Northern California. And so I go there and I spend some time with their junior high group. Um, no, no big deal, but they, they had a guy um, that was there who had just finished a program and he was going to go live in New Guinea and he was going to go find a new tribe there. He was going to go live with a new tribe. He was going to go and learn their language, which he had no rec- – his only major that he had was linguistics. 
He was going to go there. He was going to learn their entire language. He was then going to... So he has to learn their language. Then he's going to translate a Bible into their language. Wow. And then he is going to try to teach it to them. All in the same time as trying to be a part of the culture that then westernizes that civilization. Not like westernized, like in a huge way, not like conquer them or anything like that. Just more of like, hey, let's get them an airstrip or let's do this. And so this is this huge, amazing situation. But you're looking at what is a 40 to 60 year endeavor. And I don't think a lot of people grasp that. Could you imagine doing that? Would you be able to do that? I can't do that. One of those things seems daunting enough, let alone the whole package. Right? Like, translating the Bible into a different... Like, you would have to go... Like, if you went to... Like, uh, my thought is, I went to Mexico when I was in the fifth grade on a mission trip. And, guys, the guy that we were trying to communicate with was our same age. He was an orphan at this orphanage and he kept asking for su nombre and as a fifth grader we were like nombre like we were like what's the closest thing to that we're like number he's asking us what her age is if you know spanish you know that mi nombre es colton means my name is colton nombre is name he kept asking <laughs> us for our name and we kept for like we're like nombre like I'm 12, you know, and like that kind of stuff. And like, we would say that. And he was like, no, but we couldn't understand each other. And he would like try for, it took us 20 minutes to figure out what he meant. Hi, gringo. Yeah. Can you imagine going to another nation and trying to figure out what they mean from a word? And it's in the Bible. <laughs> A language where most people don't even understand half of the words that are being said there anyways. You're, you're talking about objects. We're not even talking about concepts. I know. Like, can you imagine? What is, like, you? so you get you get somewhere, you get to where you're communicating with a guy, and then it's it's time to get to some pastor, and you say, uh, so how do you, what is, what's the word in your language for substantiation? <laughs> <laughs> And so that's where it's like, when people say dedicates to the mission, why aren't you as dedicated as this guy? What about this guy from Hume Lake from, why, why aren't you as dedicated as this? And that's why it's so frustrating when it's like, this is a child's thing and that kind of stuff. And we do this all the time in the faith. Sure. This is not with your time, worth your time. You need to grow up and you need to be a part about the kingdom of God. Yeah, so having talked it out, I think that's what she's, He's pitted between these two extremes, although I don't think he'd, he would be much more positive to her extreme. He understands yes. where she's coming from, but he's pitted from the extremes on his side and then the extreme of king and country on the other, and they're tearing him, they're tearing him apart, trying to prevent him from what his mission is, his mission, his purpose. He uses that word, I think, several times, what his purpose is now. And I still think to this day, something that's very important, and one of the best lines is, is that God has given each and every one of us gifts. 
and you can feel his pleasure through any of the gifts that God has has given to you. And even if you're out there and you're just winning a race, and even if it's for your country or if it's for whatever, no matter what the hell it's for, you're out there and you are doing amazing things that God has given you the power and the capability to do. And so that's something that's super awesome. And when you're doing it, you should feel God's pleasure. And I'm not saying that, like, if you don't feel it, like, that's not, like, you're out of touch or whatever. I'm just saying that you should feel happy that what it is that you are doing is honoring and glorifying God. No matter what it is that you do, as long as you are using it for good and not for evil. And I think that's a really powerful message of that movie. Yeah. All right, I think that's it. We've spent lots of time talking about the movie, which we will do other movies. We, we're we going to make this more regular thing. Yeah, we're going to do movie nights. They're not always going to be Christian movies. Oh, but before we go, we did uh, talk about how there's a couple of books that uh, we would like to suggest to you throughout our podcast and that kind of stuff. So uh, Chariots of Fire is a book, if you'd like to read it. Um, again, it's going to give you the same storyline pretty much as... Uh, the movie did um, because it was just a book made after the movie that just kind of followed that. But there is a book uh, about Eric Little's life. If you guys would like to check that out for anybody. Again, we on this podcast like to talk about we are a Christian podcast. We do a lot of the things that we do in this podcast is we're, we're discussing uh, this is almost kind of like a Bible study for us. And so there's a lot of things that we do and that we discuss that are about the faith. And so that's why I say that Eric Little is a huge emphasis for us. And so if this is a story that has touched your heart tonight um, or this is something that you would like to look more into, uh, there's a book out there. It's called For the Glory. It's about Eric Little's life. And it's an untold and inspiring story of his life. It talks about his run-up to the Olympics, kind of his background, and then it also finishes with his time in the Chinese, uh, Japanese-occupied uh, internment camp. Or not internment camp, but the um, the camp that he was in, the prison camp that he was in. Reviews of this book have put it on the same level as Unbroken, which was a book before it was a movie, as well as The Boys in the Boat, which is considered one of a phenomenal book um, if you guys haven't gotten the chance to read it. So this is something that I would highly recommend that you, if this is something that you like, if you like that World War Two uh, era, kind of these heroes that went on to do something really incredible um, uh, that survived through a lot of these things, if those are, if that's a book that you like, I would highly recommend that you uh, give that a read. So... I'm going to give a movie recommendation because you mentioned him being in a Chinese, uh, Japanese internment camp. For those who want to watch a movie that gives you an idea uh, as to what it was for uh, civilians, particularly British, who were captured in China, I would recommend Steven Spielberg's Empire of the Sun, 1987 film. It stars Christian Bale as an adolescent. I think it's his first movie. You can see right away that Christian Bale is going to be a movie star and an excellent actor, and it tells the tale of this, uh, I think, prepubescent boy, and he grows up over the course of 
trying to survive Japanese-occupied China, and it'll give you some idea as to what it was like for a civilian trying to live in those situations. He goes in and out of camps and trying to survive on his own. So it's another great movie. It's one of Spielberg fans and particularly older fans will know that movie. But if you only know certain Spielberg movies, that's one of his best. It's one of the more quiet movies of his. Uh, So we hope you enjoy this podcast. Thanks for listening as always. Please rate, review us, subscribe so we get more listeners. Post your comments, questions, criticism. Send us an invitation to go to hell at gotohellpodcast.substack.com. Hit us up on Twitter at the Go to Hell Pod or Instagram at Go to Hell Pod. Uh, email us at Tim at Go to Hell Podcast or Colton at Go to Hell Podcast. And if you don't like chariots of fire, go to hell. I believe God made me for a purpose. He also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure.